with the story we've covered all this week, the story that shocked Canada and the world. That's the discovery of buried bodies at the site of the former residential school in Kamloops. And we continue to see the fallout uh, from this terrible story, including the movement to take down statues now of Sir John A. Macdonald, the first prime minister of Canada. The residential school system started on his watch when he was prime minister of the country. We've seen this happen in other cities, notably in Victoria, the city council there. Uh, took down a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald outside of City Hall some time ago. Now Charlottetown, the latest city in Canada to take down a statue of Macdonald. We want to talk about that at the start of the show here today. Here's the question I want you to think about. Is this the right thing to do? Should we take these statues down? Uh, will it make a difference? Will it help? Should there is there another way to, to do this? Have a listen to this here now. This is Mark Miller, the Federal Minister of Indigenous Services, speaking yesterday. He was asked about this decision to take down a statue of McDonald. Here's how he responded. Knocking things down, breaking things, is not my preferred option. Um, turning my eyes away from things is not my preferred option. Looking at things as painful as they are, explaining why they are, is my preferred option. Okay, Mark Miller there, the Federal Indigenous Services Minister. Also yesterday on the show, I talked about this issue with Aaron O'Toole, the Federal Conservative Party leader. He was a guest here yesterday. I asked him about taking down these statues, and, and here were his thoughts on it. We don't learn if we erase. Um, what we need to do is two things. Make sure that there's education. As I said, my nine-year-old son knows about residential schools, and I had a talk with with both my children. So there's some progress being made. But we also have to hold up uh, leaders and people that probably weren't given attention uh, in our history because of their Indigenous or minority status. Okay, Aaron O'Toole, the federal conservative leader on the show yesterday. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ellis Ross, the M liberal MLA for Skeena. He is running for the leadership of the B.C. Liberal Party, the former elected chief of the Heisla First Nation. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Ellis, thanks a lot for coming on this morning. You're very welcome, Mike. Nice to be here. Okay, Ellis, I've talked to you about this issue before, and I, I really appreciate your thoughts on it. The idea of taking down a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald, the, uh, who started, effectively started the residential school system. Do you think this is the right thing to do? What do you think? No. I don't think it's the right thing to do. And, and this is coming from an Aboriginal leader, an Aboriginal status Indian, and a guy that understands everything that happened to Aboriginals, not just residential school issues. Uh, I think the energies that are being put into this could be actually redirected into something more positive that can help Aboriginal people today that are dealing with the aftermath of everything that happened to Aboriginals over the last 100, 150 years. Do you think when you're speaking to Indigenous people and your constituents, your family, your friends, do many of them mention this as, as a priority, like saying when they when they see a statue of Sir John A. Macdonald that it causes pain and, and it should be a priority to take these statues down? Like, Is that a priority right now, would you say, for Indigenous people? You know, in all my years, of, I spent uh, approximately 16, 17 years uh, being a, a leader of elected chief and council. And not once did this issue ever come up. In fact, if anything, the people that came into my office crying were talking about the abuses they suffered, uh, you know, in the current system 
or they didn't have enough yeah. money to pay the rent or didn't have enough money for groceries. Uh, they didn't have enough credit rating to buy a truck. I never heard any of this in my whole life that we should be tearing down statues or erasing yeah. history for that matter. Do you think that, what do you think the higher priorities are? I mean, you often talk about indigenous poverty, uh, children in government care, indigenous people in, in prisons. Do you think that should be at the top of the to-do list? That, that, that It's always been my the top of my priority list. And I figured this out in 2004 when I understood what had happened at residential schools and the Indian Act and reserve systems and on and on and on. And I, to be, to be honest, I almost gave in to hate and vengeance. But thinking about it, I, I figured, no, no, I've I, I got to do something to actually stop all the social issues that my people are facing right now, including, unfortunately, suicide. Now, be, yeah. now, because my band is a progressive band and we actually embrace economic development after a painful fight with our own people, now we're not talking about poverty anymore. We're not talking about welfare lists. And unfortunately, I'm still looking on Facebook for other Aboriginal nations that are still dealing with the ugliest of, of issues, meaning suicide. And I just saw one again the other day, and it just breaks my heart. There's answers to this, but it's not in the political realm. It's not with government funding. It's not with government announcements and red tape and announcements of a new initiative. We've been doing that last class 50 years. It's gotten us nowhere. Speaking to Liberal MLA Ellis Ross, former elected chief of the Heisla First Nation, you, you mentioned, Ellis, that you know the whole country is going through the reckoning of, of what was discovered on the grounds of that residential school in Kamloops. And we talked about this earlier on the on the show earlier this week with you. And you mentioned that, and you just you just mentioned again that. You discovered the truth about the residential schools only in 2004. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how did that, how did that happen, and how did that awakening happen for you? Well, I was elected uh, as a councillor for my Hydration Council, and then they hired me to be a full-time councillor. And they didn't give me a real complete job description, so I went down to the archives every day for two weeks and read everything I could about, you know, what our issues were. And I just stumbled across these documents regarding the reserve system, Indian Act, residential schools, the right to legal representation, uh, the right to vote. I, I read all this because it was some of the fight that our ancestors had taken on. And so after two weeks, when I, when I finally absorbed all of it and understood it, I mean, I, I was pretty old at that time. I just sat in the archives room and cried. I couldn't believe it, especially the atrocities against children. And then it... it you know, I spent a few days thinking about revenge and, you know, how to get back and, you know, stop everything. And But then after that, I thought about it and said, what good is that when my people are committing suicide? They're going to prison. They're on welfare lists. Our children going to care. And so yeah. I, I spent a lot of time reflecting on what can I do to fix the present. And that's how I came to the idea of economic development so our people, you know, could, could get jobs and actually live independent lives and become strong people again without forgetting the past, mind you. Because the, the people who went to residential school are still alive. They're my friends, they're my aunties, uncles, my parents who just recently passed away. This is a live issue. Yeah. But instead of thinking about something negative mm-hmm. and something that actually doesn't really help the Aboriginals today, I thought about how do we, how do we acknowledge the past but build the future? And that's, I still stand by that today. Your, your words remind me of, of something that former Senator 
Marie Sinclair said, the chair of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, who said something very similar about the idea of taking down statues of Sir John A. Macdonald. He said he didn't agree with that either. He said to him that smacked of revenge or or anger when the priority should be building up and not and not tearing down. Like if you take a look at some of the recommendations from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, they did not recommend taking statues down. They did recommend possibly putting new statues up, though, maybe using uh, indigenous artists. What do you think of that idea? Oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah. yeah. And you know, it, this goes into that whole narrative about how. Uh, everything that uh, the settler, the colonialist, brought to the First Nations. And, and if you read the narrative, it seems to be like everything was wrong. And I don't even use the term settler or colonialist. I think that's that's not a very good term. I, I think that actually puts down the people today who had no, no, no stake in what happened to Aboriginals 150 years ago. Yeah. It's unfair to that person working in Tim Hortons to say that, oh, you're a settler. Or you're a colonialist. In fact, I, I got this way of thinking from my elders. Who, who we had this conversation in a public meeting once, and an elder got up and said, "Wait a minute! Wait a minute! Wait a minute!" You know, the, the settler brought insulated houses. They brought electricity. They brought warm clothes. They brought uh, guaranteed food sources. They brought steel. And he went on and on and on. Listen, and he said, "You know, don't don't think that everything was bad." even mentioned, and this is uh, dark Native humor that Natives will understand, mm-hmm. he said, he even brought toilet paper. <laughs> and the whole room laughed. Uh, but I, I thought about that, and I, I started to reflect on that. I said, yeah, that's right. I'm not going back to the old days of going into the bush and killing a deer and skinning it and making clothes and you know cooking the meat, because that was a really tough life. Yeah. The, elder, the elders I talked to in my community, I said, what, what do you think about going back to the old ways? And every one of them said, no. It, was, it wasn't an easy time. It was tough. It was hard. It was survival. And so I, I just, I reject this whole narrative that says everything. Even I was told in a public meeting yeah. uh, by my elders that I've got to stop using racist terms. Hmm. you imagine that? Chief Counselor. And it was an elder that said, "You keep, you keep calling uh, the, the, our our brothers across the way. You keep calling them white men. That's racist. Stop calling them that." Hmm. And I said, "Well, what am I supposed to call them? Well, I'll call them what we refer to them, Gumswa. Hmm. And that was a name that was given because First Nations didn't understand, you know, what what the the newcomers were to our land, hmm. so they called them Gumswa. You know, a person that comes out from underneath the floorboards of a boat, <laughs> and so." It, I catch myself every once in a while saying that, and I just, yeah, okay. I'll, I'll try to remember that. And Anyway, it's been a long journey to get to, to my way of thinking today. Ellis, it's, it's been my great pleasure to have you on the show once again today. Thank you for your thoughts and insights. I appreciate it. You're very welcome, Mike. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the bailout and the bonuses now. Air Canada paying its executives $10 million in bonuses. The airline confirming this week in an annual statement to its shareholders. It did indeed bail, give out $10 million in executive bonuses and stock options. At the same time, Air Canada was negotiating a near 6 billion dollar federal bailout 
Unbelievable. They also got $650 million in federal wage subsidies from Canadian taxpayers. Are you kidding me? Bailed out to the tune of $6 billion bucks. At the same time, you've got executives at Air Canada lining their pockets with bonuses. This is unbelievable. Have a listen to this now. You've got the government running for cover on this thing now. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday in the House of Commons saying he says Air Canada's got some splaining to do here. He wants an explanation. Maybe he should have asked for one before he gave them a bailout. The Federal Finance Minister, Christy Freeland, she is also not happy. She says Air Canada's behaved in, uh, inappropriately here. Have a listen to this exchange here now in the in the Senate. You're going to hear Don Plett here, conservative senator. He's the opposition leader in the Senate, questioning uh, the government senators here on this bailout and bonus nonsense here. Have a listen. How could the Trudeau government say it capped compensation at $1 million, but allow Air Canada executives to collect bonuses of 2 to $3 million each? For having laid off, leader, for having laid off most of their employees. How does this make any sense? Oh, unbelievable. Now listen to the response here from Liberal Senator Mark Gold. He's the government leader in the Senate. Before this agreement was actually signed, and its terms, therefore, legally in, fact, in, in, in effect, Air Canada paid the bonuses is one that is deeply, deeply disappointing to the, the Canadian government. Okay, well, the government's deeply disappointed here. Apparently, they paid out the bonuses before the deal for the bailout was signed. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, Chris Sims, BC Director, Canadian Taxpayers Federation. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Okay, what do you think of this? Well, this is firmly in the government's lap. It's their responsibility to kick the tires and do their due diligence before ladling out taxpayers' money. If they were in the middle of negotiations with these big wigs over at Air Canada, they should have maybe asked. So yeah. are you guys in the middle of handing out gigantic bonuses to your corporate brass while laying off most of your staff? Apparently that question wasn't asked and none of those uh, answers were signed. So this lands right in their laps and they're not new at this. I have to remind people that the finance minister knows what she's doing and she's surrounded by experts in her department who, right. you know, this is not their first rodeo. Right. Do you think it should have been a no-brainer to make sure that that box was checked off here before you're going to hand this company $6 billion and Canadian taxpayers are actually going to buy a piece of the company? We own part of Air Canada now, by the way. Yes, the we do. Oh, man, unbelievable. You think they should have said, like, by the way... We know how these companies operate. Uh, you know, we don't want to see any bonuses being uh, doled out here. I mean, that should have been question number one, what, shouldn't it? Well, yeah, it's a no-brainer. So you yeah. see, you know, the idea, I think most people, when they think of airlines, when they're traveling, back when we used to be able to travel, they're thinking of pilots, they're thinking of flight attendants, they're thinking of the baggage handlers, right? Those, those, those workers who are often right. even in the steel-toed boots down on the tarmac, those are the ones that should have been getting this emergency money, not, you know, these corporate bigwigs who got it technically before they got the wage subsidy. So that's what's really rotten about this, too, is well, that yeah, they did it just before. That's a really good point, because there was a lot of people who were laid off from Air Canada. Think of the all the spin-off job loss in this industry as well. Like, I'm thinking about travel agencies and stuff, people who lost their job, who must be just fuming here this morning. To hear that this company, this company was largely shut down, laid all these people off, 
and you got these executives lining their pockets with these these huge bonuses. It's just unreal. Like if you take a look in other countries, Chris, and the way they've done it, like Germany, I thought quite notably, they made sure that you got a company there. It's going to get public money right there in black and white. No executive bonuses, no dividends paid out to shareholders, no big raises for these executives. If you're mm-hmm. going to get bailed out for the public, that should have been the deal. Yeah, for sure. And the, yeah. Germany's not alone here. Uh, Spain, they made sure that they had to have full reimbursement if they paid well, one bit of dividend. So no dividends yeah. were even allowed to be paid out of the companies that they gave emergency wage subsidies to. And then in the Netherlands, for example, they completely banned bonuses to executives. You weren't getting one version of their nickel, so to speak, in taxpayers' money if you were going to turn around and give it to your bigwigs. And in this case, Air Canada isn't alone. Uh, Bombardier got a pretty darn big bailout. It was about a $110 million or so when it comes to wage subsidy. And right around April of 2020, their CEO got a bonus of $759,000. Oh. Oh so just God. in the, like, the worst part of COVID, this dude gets this kind of a bonus, almost a million dollars. Oh, man. These executives just clean up on these bonuses. This is just unreal. Yeah. There's, mean, a oh. bonus, there's the bonuses, and then there's also just the really bad optics, too. You remember, it wasn't so long ago when Bell Media, they got tons of money. They got $122 million in COVID relief, and then just a few weeks later, gassed hundreds of their staff, including on-air right. workers, producers, you name it, right after Bell Let's Talk. So it's things like that that really bother average people. You know, most people are struggling to get through this right now. They don't mind helping other people out. Like you said, the travel agent, the person who can't get to work because their industry shut down. And then massive corporations like this who take in billions of dollars every year treat their workers that way. It's not good. Okay, Chris, what do you think about the bailout of Air Canada in general, like in principle? Do you think that's the right thing to do? I mean, is this one of those companies that's too big to fail and that the Mm. government made the right move here in, in helping them, bailing them out? There's good and bad there. The good side is that it is supposed to be a loan. We will sit and wait to see when and if it is paid back. So that is a good thing. It is a loan. So we're not talking about the Canada emergency wage subsidy there. It's separate. So there's that part that they took, yes, but they also got what's often referred to as a bailout. That is supposed to be a loan. And so Air Canada is supposed to pay it back. But there's a weird catch. For some reason, the federal government is now insisting that Air Canada go through with purchases of new aircraft. Why? Why not leave that up to the company to decide if demand warrants it, if they want to invest in that kind of hardware? Uh, government doesn't do much very good. Um, they can't run an airline, that's certain. So they shouldn't be dictating to Air Canada saying, by the way, we're bailing you out, but you need to buy a whole bunch of these planes. What if they're empty? Okay, what should happen now? I mean, this is one of the things that Canadians are asking, and they, they absorb this information. Here you got these huge bonuses paid out at the same time the taxpayer is bailing the company out. Like, should there be some sort of a clawback? Should Air Canada have to pay back some of this some of this money to Canadian taxpayers? Like, what do you think should be done? That's a good question. So the NDP in their opposition role are demanding uh, for a full clawback, and some of their recommendations have taken place since September. So as of right now, supposedly, you are now no longer allowed to pay your executives massive bonuses and to gas masses um, amounts of your staff if you get the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. Um, frankly, that should have been the get-go. That should have been from stage one. Our issue with a potential retroactive clawback at this point is what kind of instability might that create within a corporation? 
Corporations are really yeah. complex systems, and the government is a blunt hammer. What if it screws up other people's livelihoods that aren't executives? What if that results right. in them losing their jobs? So that's where you've got to be careful now that the horse has run out of the barn. Basically, you just need to close the door. Well, the other thing that I'm hearing is maybe these executives should be forced to pay these bonuses back, but that is kind of fraught with legal peril as well, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And then what yeah. happens if they turn around and sue? Right. And then the company has to go to court and pay their lawyers, and now they don't have money to pay for Joe and Mary front porch to work on the tarmac anymore. You know, it can have, it can have repercussions. Frankly, they should have not done this when it first started. And, And again, people say, yes, we have to be gracious because it was all new. Everything was slamming into us. But the idea of bailouts and wage subsidies and helping a company is not new to Ottawa. They've been handing out corporate welfare in various forms for decades. So they have specialists in the finance department and at the Treasury Board who should have been able to cross these T's and dot these I's. It's really unacceptable. Well, sure. They're very good at doling out money. This is what they do. They're very experienced. They're very experienced at that. This is their bag, baby. Um, This should have been part of the contract. All right, welcome back. It's the bailout and the bonuses. $10 billion in executive bonuses at Air Canada at the same time. They received a $6 billion government bailout. Lots of calls on the open line. Let's go to them right now. James in White Rock. Hey, James. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say, I don't know, I don't know why this is a surprise. When Trudeau first got in, he gave Bombardier a massive bailout. They gave their execs huge bonuses, and then they shut down production facilities in Canada to allow them to go to work in Europe. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is liberal, regular business practice. This is no shock to anybody. Okay, thanks for that. Chris Sims from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. You made that similar point earlier, right? It is, and it's par for yeah. the course, and unfortunately, COVID has just exacerbated it because they're taking advantage of it. Dave in Vancouver. Hey, Dave. Oh, hey. Um, I just wanted to bring up the fact that this this isn't just the big corporations doing this. I think the whole wage subsidy was was flawed from the get-go. I, I work in construction, and I personally know a lot of guys who gross $1 to $5 million a year who did a bit of creative accounting in the past couple of years or 18 months and have have gotten two hundred dollars to $500,000 in wage subsidy and these are guys that run their own business, and they're used to making a hundred to two hundred thousand a year. So this is a huge leap for these guys, and it didn't have anything to do with them doing less work or COVID because everyone was busy. It was just a bit of creative accounting that says if you made thirty percent this March, thirty uh, percent less this March than you did last March, then you then you qualify for this thing. And if you've got twenty five guys at eight hundred and fifty bucks a week, yeah, coming from man, and nothing had nothing said you had to give that to your employees. So, these weren't going to employees. Mm. This is just going off the top to the, to the owner of the company. Well, and, uh, th- thank you, Dave, for that. There is evidence out there, Chris, that there has been some fraud, that money was paid out to people who really shouldn't have received it. The federal conservatives have been calling for a long time for an audit into a lot of these programs. They said it just paid out too much money. What do you, what do you think? Well, we think that there needs to be an audit and they need to bring this money back into the fold if it was fraudulently paid out. But what's, what's, I'll give you an example. Uh, so yeah. Revenue Canada, a couple of years ago, went after waitresses and people who work in clothing shops for them getting, you know, 50% off pairs of pants or free lunches. <laughs> They'll shake them down for their loonies and toonies, but they won't go after these folks. And that's what's depressing here. Okay, let's go to Mike in Vancouver. Hey, Mike. Hey, Mike, uh, Chris, it's always great to have her on the show. I just want to reiterate what that earlier gentleman said and something that you said. This is not fraud. 
so many companies took such great advantage of the two opportunities they had with the government that were totally legal. One was, if your business was down 30%, what you did is you laid off enough employees to reduce your cost by the 30%. Then you went and you claimed the wage subsidy, totally legal, and now you were making a ton of profit. So I know a small company that uh, earned $1.54 million in profit and gave it to their, their executives, which is just a small piece of it. The other one that's interesting is the government says, oh, here's the deal. Let's give everybody $40,000 and we have to pay back thirty. Everybody went and took that money very legally, took the 40000 and then almost immediately paid back the 30000 and kept ten and moved it out as profit. Uh, it really is all uh, legal, absolutely legal, just poorly, poorly thought out. We have an incompetent government who never thought it through. And I think Chris okay. or somebody said, we had people who've done this for years and years. They've given out subsidies. They should know this thing upside down and sideways. That wage subsidy was so messed up and totally legal. You're not getting a nickel of that back. Okay. If, it, if they only gave $10 million out, we're lucky they only gave $10 million out. <laughs> <laughs> thank, thank you for that, Mike. Well, I, I guess the, the rationale on it, Chris, was this was a, an unprecedented public health emergency in the country, and the government wanted to get money out as quickly as possible out the door to prop up the economy and to keep people whole through this thing, right? Yes, but is, I mean, is that an adequate excuse for being a little maybe loose, loosey goosey on how the where the money went? For the first few months, you know, it is. Uh, remember how it felt back in the early days of this. We thought it was going to be horrific, and you have to get money out fast. There are real people who needed this money. Like I have a girlfriend in Alberta, for example. She used to manage a hotel. She was managing that place, and her husband waited two years to get his job on Keystone. Guess what happened to those jobs? She's now working part-time at the dollar store overnight. Like, there are people who needed this money. Let's be clear. What's disappointing is that it sounds like lots of uh, big companies took advantage of it. Let's go to Ron on the line in Abbotsford. Hey, Ron. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Sure. Yeah, this is just uh, par for the course, you know, uh, just like the CRTC uh, reversal uh, to our internet charges. And uh, I would like like you to look at uh, who has been giving money to the charities of of Trudeau and and all their insider cliques who have charities. And also, Mm. none of this has has come out on CBC. And I guess that's that's part of that $600 million payout. Okay, thanks, Ron. Let's squeeze another couple of calls in here. Rick in Port Moody. Go ahead, Rick. Hi, Mike. Uh, Thanks for taking my call. Good morning, Chris. You know, Chris, you nailed it right on the head when you said that the optics of this look totally awful. Um, Although, I want to hear from Air Canada. I want to understand why it is that they, you know, they decided to go this route, because clearly when they made the decision, they knew it's not going to be hidden, that it's going to be exposed. Um, So, there are smart people there. I I mean, there's got to be more to the story. Either there were going to be penalties, or they were going to lose executives that are going to help them get out of this. We're not getting the whole story. It just looks so, so awful. But I, I need to hear from them to, to, you know, to get the defense from them as to why okay. they, um, they made this decision and, um, and get the whole story as opposed to just you know, getting ready with your pitchforks and, uh, and torches. Uh, Thanks, to, Rick. Thanks for a good call. Do you agree, uh, do you agree Chris? Ten seconds yeah, here. Yeah, it'd be great to hear their side of things. I hope they have a good yeah. explanation. Yeah, you got some explaining to do. Okay, well, wait to hear what Air Canada has to say. Chris Sims, thanks a lot. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the future of rapid transit in Surrey and beyond now. Should we keep building out the SkyTrain system south of the Fraser and into the valley, or 
What about the cheaper, many would say more appropriate, LRT technology, light rail transit system? This is a debate that's been going on for a long time, kicking into higher gear now. Now, here's the current situation. Funding in place right now to build SkyTrain from the King George Station in Surrey out to 166th Street in the Fleetwood neighborhood of Surrey. Now, that is six new SkyTrain stations on that extension. Well, what about after that? Well, the mayor of Langley saying it's time to approve and get going on a further SkyTrain extension to her city, to the city of Langley. She is calling on the Justin Trudeau federal government to get moving on that. Meanwhile, looking further out, should we keep building out, keep building all the way to Abbotsford? This is what we need. This is what the people want. This is where the population growth is. Let's discuss now with my guest, Henry Braun, the mayor of Abbotsford. Mayor Braun, thank you for coming on today. Well, good morning, Mike, and thank you for the invite. And you the be- answer to those questions is yes. <laughs> I, <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. Okay, Tell, let's talk about that now, building rapid transit out to your community in Abbotsford. Like, how high a priority, how pressing is the need for that right now? Well, there's a tremendous amount of growth up the valley here, and yeah. uh, the need is uh, is there. Uh, obviously, uh, you, in the intro, uh, you were talking about SkyTrain and whether it should be surface rail. Uh, I don't think SkyTrain, well, that's that's up to the province and others. Yeah. But uh, LRT, surface rail out here is absolutely doable. Yes, there's some hurdles. I have some rail background, transit background. But those are engineering challenges that I'm sure the engineers will figure out. But uh, whether it comes down Highway 1 uh, in the median or up Fraser Highway, uh, those are discussions that still need to take place. Okay, let's just update the listeners here on what the current situation is here, Mayor Braun. So the SkyTrain extension out to Fleetwood, when is that expected to be completed? Do we know? Uh, I'm not part of the Metro Mayor's uh, caucus, so I don't know. I'm not privy to those conversations but, okay, uh, but, but then it's supposed to go out to Langley, and we already yep. see the mayor of the mayor of Langley saying, let's get going, build SkyTrain out to Langley. Do you think that's a good idea? Well, I think that decision's been made yeah. uh, from everything I have seen. So it will be, uh, uh, it'll end up at the um, uh, city of Langley. And right. from there, uh, Mayor Jack Froze and I have had very, very preliminary discussion about, have you thought about where you would want the extension to go from there? And Fraser Highway is a natural, but also, uh, it, you know, a diversion out to the median and down the median with eventually, if you look 25 years down the road uh, or longer, out to Chilliwack because the population wow. is going to continue to increase. Well, sure, it just makes sense that we get some rapid transit going here in the valley for sure. Okay, the mayor of Langley now is saying that, look, calling on Justin Trudeau to, to get some money on the table to get that SkyTrain built out to Langley. And then I guess the question is, where does it go from there? When do we start building out from there? Now, is your preference for your preferences for an LRT system, a light rail transit system, out to Abbotsford and beyond? Is that right? Well, it, only based on cost. Uh, SkyTrain yeah. is like ten times uh, what uh, surface. Uh, we built a good portion of Calgary and Edmonton system, uh, which is uh, uh, surface rail. Um, that would be that's my preference. But uh, if yeah. people want to spend the money on SkyTrain, I guess. That's their decision, but it seems to me it's a more efficient use of money. What's the difference? What's the difference? How would you describe the difference between a SkyTrain system and an LRT system? Well, it's the same. We ha- we have surface rail with SkyTrain currently, uh, downtown Newestminster. It's the same system. One is just elevated, yeah. uh, which is where the money is because you're bidding, bid- building a very long bridge. Uh, yeah. The other one is surface, so there's no difference in the technology between. Uh, 
it's not that you're switching over from SkyTrain to somehow it's different technology for light rail. Right, just be built at grade. At grade, yep. Yeah, yeah, okay. And if you're going down the median, why would you want to elevate it and spend well, it, all well, that exactly. money? Because there's no crossings. Right, so, okay, if you build down the median, you're talking about the... Uh, so, so what one. would be Highway 1? So how would, what would that look like? Can you paint a picture there for people what that would look like if you did the LRT along Highway 1 there? Well, it would come right uh, down between the east and westbound lanes. Yeah, uh, right down right the, in middle. the middle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Okay. Uh, you see this in Toronto with uh, Go Transit and Via Rail. It's, they got two tracks in the middle and away they go. Okay, what would that mean for your community? And then, if we built out to like Chilliwack, and you know, the, this is the dream of getting rapid transit to the valley, which I think should be a high priority. What would that mean for for your community? Well, it, it, it's a tremendous benefit for people who are trying to get into jurisdictions to the west of us yeah. without having to jump in a car and plug up the freeway because you know a single lane addition to the highway isn't going to solve all of our transportation problems either. And so uh, this is one mode of transportation for people who don't maybe have the ability to, you know, there's, there's a lot of people, especially younger people, the millennials, don't, don't even own vehicles. Right, right, so how exactly. Do they, how do they get to points, uh, you know, into Surrey or into Langley or, or Burnaby? So this gives them an option. We are doing internal things in our own city with uh, we're amping up our uh, transit uh, system. Uh, we're part of BC Transit, so we've just opened up a new transit facility, uh, added a bunch of new buses. Uh, so we're doing our pit, uh, part here, but we need to figure out a way to get our people from Abbotsford to points west. Absolutely. I totally agree with you. Speaking to Abbotsford Mayor Henry Braun about the future of rapid transit to Abbotsford and, and beyond, uh, what is the population trends like right now for Abbotsford and the communities further out in the valley? Is it just growing rapidly? Well, we're part of the Fraser Valley Regional District, so that comprises Abbotsford, Chilliwack, Mission, Hope, uh, Kent, uh, and Harrison, plus eight electoral areas. So our our, uh, population, combined population, I think is just past 320,000 people. Abbotsford by itself is 162,000, so we are half, uh, roughly half of what the FERD population. But our population has increased in in the last five years here by 20,000 people just yeah. in Abbotsford, and I know that they've got the same growth uh, in Chilliwack uh, on a percentage basis, uh, so does Mission, because a lot of people from Mission come here too, So, and, and that's just increasing. We've got 6,000 residential units in the pipeline just by ourselves in Abbotsford. Right, rapid growth, we need transit, we need public rapid transit for, for sure. What are you hearing from your constituents? Are, they, do you, are you asked about this a lot? Yes, I, yeah. I, I actually am. Right. And uh, and I, at my first mayor's breakfast, uh, actually had a visual about transit, BC Transit running down uh, just uh, in between the two uh, east and westbound lanes uh, down by Mount Lehman Road. So, yeah. so I introduced this when I became the mayor. Yeah, no, I like the way you've stuck up for it, for sure. You mentioned that you've had some preliminary discussions with officials. Have you talked to the premier about it, I believe? Uh, I have. Uh, we have talked about uh, transit. Uh, um, I think the premier probably has something else in mind too, but I'm not sure what. Oh. Uh, because we, well, we were talking about uh, you know the um, the rapid train uh, from uh, Washington State, oh. and he wanted to know what my views were on on transit. And I said, hey, I we have to get light rail transit or SkyTrain if that's what people you know the powers to be want to do. Yeah. out to this part of the world because this is where the growth is going to be south of the Fraser. We know that there's a million plus people coming here in the next 20 years. 
Right, we already right. know that. And we need to start planning for that because we are way behind where we ought to be in our infrastructure. Yeah, I mean, that, that should be a high priority for sure. There is this idea, like you said, to build a rapid a rapid train, like a bullet train down to Seattle and then down to Portland. Is it sort of Cascadia rail idea? Uh, what do you think should be built first? Do you think that should be a priority? Or I mean, come on, we got to get we got to get rapid transit built in the valley before we think about anything else like that, shouldn't we? Yeah, I, I don't want to get into the uh, U.S. Uh, and Canadian transportation systems. Those are, that's uh, that's above my pay grade. But uh, I <laughs> I really believe that we need to focus on the highway one widening and right. transit out to the valley before we do uh, look at some of these other things. Because you're oh. talking billions of dollars uh, with the bullet train. Oh, yeah. So what would it cost, though, to do LRT out to Abbotsford? Is there any preliminary numbers out there on it? Uh, there was, I think there was, um, uh, I, think, I don't know if it was the Fraser Institute, but one of them, or, or it was a credit union, but I thought it was about $8 billion. Wow, okay. Which is, which is a lot of money. <laughs> well, it I, is. But when you plan for, you know, the next hundred years, it's, it's, you know, it puts it into perspective. Right. And you mentioned that you've been involved in some of these transit projects in the past, so the the LRT option is attra- is it mostly attractive to you because of the cost? Yes, but the route yeah. as well. Uh, I mm. mean, there's been some people that have suggested that Southern Rail's uh, track should should be an option. That doesn't work because of the freight train traffic through uh, that seven mile corridor in in the township of Lang- well, the city of Langley too. Yeah, so you're looking at Highway One is is your is your best option. Well, uh, no, I wouldn't say that. It, it's either Highway 1 or it's uh, Fraser Highway, it seems to okay. me, to be the two natural corridors. Which right. one of those is uh, is less costly, I don't know. That's an engineering uh, question, and I'm not an engineer. Okay, so where do we go from here on this now? You've had a few preliminary discussions with officials. Is there any kind of formal process for moving this thing forward, or what's next? Well, I try to do my uh, my lobbying uh, one-on-one with either ministers or the premier, uh, I tend not to, uh, uh, you know, make a lot of noise in public because I don't mm-hmm. think that's how you advance things. Uh, you sit down and have a discussion for a half an hour or an hour to help people understand what this means and what we should and why we should be doing it, and, and then they have to go and do their homework at the other end too. And you know, to do that in a respectful way is always a better way than, you know, to pound. Uh, the table and make uh, outrageous uh, statements publicly, uh, that doesn't get you very far. Okay, that sounds very reasonable to me. Thank you very much for coming on today to talk about it. appreciate it a lot. You're very welcome. Anytime.